You're listening to episode eight of Speaking with Deacon. Your sins are forgiven. Speaking with Deacon is a production of the Perusia Podcast Network in partnership with Voice of Charity Australia and EWTN Asia Pacific. Join us as we discuss strategies that will empower us to announce the gospel of the Lord daily through our words and deeds. This is Speaking with Deacon. Hello, and thanks for joining us again on Speaking with Deacon. I'm Mark Griffin, your host. And joining me, as always, from the other side of the world is Dynamic Deacon Harold Burke-Sivers. Deacon Harold, how are you? I'm doing well, Marcus. Great to see you as always. Yeah, it's great to be back with you once again. And we're up to episode eight now in this series of discussions, and I'm, I'm really enjoying the discussions as we go through. This time around, we're going to talk about the Sacrament of Reconciliation. And a good place to start when we talk about reconciliation is let's start in the book of Genesis. What kind of relationship did God want to have with humanity? And where did sin come from in this picture? And why was it so destructive to that relationship? Well, the kind of relationship that God wanted with us is a covenant relationship. And covenant relationship is really the foundation of all the relationships uh, in the scriptures and the foundation of our relationship to Jesus Christ uh, as well. So in a covenant relationship, um, there's a mutual exchange of love, life, intimacy, and communion, right? In, in our culture today, for example, most relationships, especially amongst young people, they would consider them contractual relationships, right? Um, so this is yours and this is mine. Like, okay, I agree that I will give you my body for this amount of money. Or, you know, um, if you give me pleasure, I will give you this in exchange. So it's just, you know, it's very impersonal. Um, there, there's no, and in many cases, really no love, no real intimacy. It's just a matter of uh, fulfilling some kind of bodily or physical desire. But God wants so much more than that with us. So he establishes a covenant between us. Uh, a contract is merely an exchange of goods. A covenant is an exchange of persons, right? A, a contract says, this is yours and this is mine. A covenant says, I am yours and you are mine. It's making a complete and total gift of yourself to someone and that someone makes a complete and total gift of themselves back to you in love that is free and faithful and total and fruitful. It's covenant love is a love that gives everything, right? It's a love that holds nothing back because Jesus held nothing back of his love for us on the cross. He gave everything, right? On the cross, he broke himself open and poured himself out in love. And he's calling us to do the exact same thing. And that exchange is, is beautifully represented in receiving the Eucharist and the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass. What's the exchange? Jesus already did his part, right? He, he died and rose from the dead, and now he's giving himself to us, uh, body, blood, soul, divinity, the Eucharist. Our part of that covenant exchange is getting up and walking toward Jesus in that blessed sacrament. And because what, what are we saying by that action? We're saying, Lord Jesus Christ, I love you. I love you more than anyone. 
or anything in this world. I love you so much that I want you to create your life in me. That's what we're saying. And so the, the reception of Jesus Christ in the Eucharist is a beautiful example, a beautiful model of how covenant relationship works. And that is what God wants to establish uh, between himself and us. And then the problem with this was that this relationship was us giving ourselves to God and him giving himself to us. And that's how it was meant to work. But things go wrong when we hold something back. As you said, that relationship is about holding, holding nothing back. When we hold something back or when we put ourselves first, that's where the problems arise. And that's basically what happened and, and sin entered the garden. Tell us a little bit about how this all went wrong. Well, um, it's, covenant relationship is rooted in freedom, right? Because if, if, if you can't give yourself in that relationship totally, completely to someone freely, then it's not really love. It's slavery or it's prostitution or it's human trafficking or something like that. It, it's not real love because there's not, there, there's no freedom there. Right. And, and so what happens is, is that um, God gave us this beautiful gift of freedom. Why? Because he wants us to freely say yes to his invitation to love life, intimacy, and communion. But that means this Mark, we're free to say yes, and we're also free to say no, right? God never wants us to say no. He always wants us to say yes to him. But because we are created with freedom, we have the ability to say no. Now, in the garden, the way that was represented, by uh, that no was represented by God saying, by taking the fruit of the tree and eating it, okay? because um, the tree represented God's authority, right? And, and so um, he, he gives man, uh, it, it puts him in charge of everything in the garden, puts him over all his creation, except for that tree right there. Because it's a physical reminder that, you know, of God's power and authority, I'm God and you're not, right? But sometimes in our, in our arrogance, sometimes we think we're God. Sometimes we think because we can manipulate and control certain things within nature because we could discover things about nature, right? We, we get this God complex where we think we're God. And so as you so wonderfully said, Mark, we put ourselves then ahead of God, or we try to put ourselves above God, that's where the problem of sin comes in. And what happens with our first parents, they had a little help. They were beguiled by Satan. Right. And so Satan's whole um, his whole plan is to destroy covenant relationship. God's trying to build covenant relationship. Satan is trying to destroy that relationship. And so he convinces our first parents to put themselves first and not to trust God totally, fully and completely. Trust yourself. Don't trust God. And when that happened, they end up eating the fruit of the tree and said their eyes were open. And, you know, because the lie was you're going to become like God. Well, did they actually become like God? No, they did not. Uh, in fact, they lost friendship with God. They lost divine intimacy with God, not because God turned his back on them, but because God respected their free will decision to say no to him. And when we do that, that has 
consequences. Some of those consequences are temporal or earthly, and some of them are eternal, right? Uh, which is which is hell, right? The eternal separation of God forever. And so that's that's how sin worked its way into the world. And that's why, Mark, Jesus had to die. Why people say, why couldn't Jesus come and teach for 33 years and or or even longer and it's die an old man? Because the worst effect of sin is death. In Hebrew, the word for death is mavet. It means to, it not just doesn't mean physical death. It means to cut yourself off from God's life, right? Which is worse than death. Imagine cutting yourself off from God's life. When you're in hell, that means you cut yourself off from God's life forever. And so Jesus had to die and then, of course, rise from the dead to show that not even death, the worst effect of sin is more powerful than God's love and God's mercy. So we have to trust in God's mercy more than in our sin. Why is it that Satan went after the woman first? Why was she the target? And, and what does that mean for, for humanity and the order of creation? Why was it that Eve was the target? Yeah, that's a great question, Mark. And, and it's important to discuss that because we, we live in a world and a culture today that tries to uh, that tries to combat this this so-called ideology that men are somehow superior to women, that women are second place uh, behind men, even in the church, right? Because you know we can't we don't ordain women as priests, therefore women don't have the same equality as men. Blah blah blah. The same tired argument. Well, here's the thing: the church, I believe, out of any other religion in the world, uh, upholds women and has the most highest esteem for women than any other religion in the world. And see, what, what happens is, is people try to equate equality within the culture to equality within the church, right? So they say, unless women are doing what men do, then they're not equal. This is not a, a secular job where you're trying to climb a corporate ladder. You know, the church doesn't care about that. The church just looks at it, uh, from the idea of relationship. So for example, the woman, if you look at Genesis one and two, they say, look, even in the scriptures, the woman is created after the man. She's created second. She's like an afterthought. Oh no, nothing could be further from the truth. She's not created second. She's created last, last. Because think about it. In Genesis one, there's all of the creation, the sky, the sun, the moon, the star, the birds, the animals, all of that. And then male and female, he created them, right? So man and woman, not second, but last of all of God's creation. And in Genesis 2, we see the same thing. We see man, right, created first. He got breathed into his nostrils, the breath of life. Then we see all of the animals are created, and then Adam names them. And then the woman last who comes from his side. Why? God saves his best work for last. Right? And I don't say that just to placate women, right? But there's a beautiful truth there. Let's look at Genesis 2, which is the much more anthropological um, look at the relationship between man and woman. So God creates man, and the word is Adam right? Adam, Adam in Hebrew, but it doesn't mean male, 
right? Because we Adam is a masculine name that we have in our culture today, but the word itself does not mean male. In Hebrew, it has the sense of the fullness of humanity. Now he's depicted as male, but truly the, the word Adam means of humanity in its fullness. And, and that's why there has to come a differentiation, which is Ish Adisha, male and female he created him. So the Adam uh, is differentiated as male and female. Why? In his state of masculinity, right, the, the Adam, uh, he, he recognizes certain things about himself. He knows that he's superior to all the other creatures that God created because um, God puts him in charge of them. He's self-aware and self-conscious. He's aware of himself. And he's also aware of the fact that he can be in relationship with God. He recognizes all of that. But what's the problem? He has no one to share it with, right? Because if we're made in the image and likeness of God, we know that God himself uh, exists as a family, as a communion of persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So man by himself makes no sense. So God uh, then puts the man to sleep. And he says, it's not good for man to be alone. So he puts the man into a, a deep sleep, teradema in Hebrew, which means a deep sleep without consciousness or dreams. And whenever you see that word used in, for example, in Job, in 2 Samuel, in the book of Exodus, um, whenever someone's put in that deep sleep, when they wake up, God does something amazing. And then he takes a rib from the side. Um, the word for rib there is selah in Hebrew. It actually doesn't mean rib at all. It literally means side. Um, and the reason why they put rib in English is because in, in, if, if, if when the Jewish person reads in the scriptures selah, they automatically know it's the middle, the side from the, the, the side of the person, like a side of the rib. But in English, side can mean what? Left side, right side, upper, lower, French fries. I mean, <laughs> fries means a lot of different things. Um, so, so in English, they had to use the word rib, but, but here's the point that if he took a bone from the upper part of the body, she'd be greater than him. If he used the bone from the lower part of the body, she'd be less than him. He used a rib, say la, from the side to show that she's equal to him, right? Equal in dignity before God. That equality is shown in Genesis one, where they're created male and female. He created them, right? At, at, kind of at the same time. In Genesis 2, that equality is shown by using the rib, and he builds up a woman. He doesn't start from another pile of, of dirt, right? He, he, he takes the rib and then builds up the woman and then brings her to the man as a gift, as a gift. Why? A woman has a special intimacy with the Holy Spirit. We, we pray in the creed every Sunday, credo espiritus sanctus dominum et vivificantem. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life. Women, by the very nature of how God created them, even if they never have a child, by their very nature, they cooperate with the gift of the Holy Spirit and are able to bring forth life in a way that we men can never even imagine, right? That is a tremendous, that is one of the most creative and powerful forces in the entire universe, motherhood, right? And so, what so so Satan goes after the one then not because she's weaker than the man no that's not that's not it at all he goes after her because she's the life giver 
and the life bearer. And uh, Satan is the author of death. And so he goes after the one who gives life. Now, Adam's job was to serve, protect, and defend his wife. And when all that temptation was going on, he didn't do any of that. And, and that is the, the, the reason why sin came into the world. In fact, um, Satan used a woman as a vehicle to bring sin into the world. And God uses the most blessed of all women, the life giver and the blessed Virgin Mary to, 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 as a vehicle to bring life and salvation into the world, right? Uh, Eve's no to God led to death. Mary's yes, her fiat to God leads to everlasting life. Beautiful juxtaposition there. And, and again, what's the key? The woman. That's why the Catholic Church holds the Blessed Virgin Mary in the highest esteem. The most revered saint in the entire church is a wife and a mother. It's an interesting thing you said in there is you said that obviously Satan's gone after the woman first. It was Adam's job to protect her. I think it can be easily seen in scripture that Adam was there and present. It wasn't like he was just away somewhere else in the garden and and came back and said, what have you done? He was actually there present. I think we can clearly extrapolate that from the, the text, can't we? Yeah, so, so the, the, the problem with that, Mark, is when people look at that text and they see the conversation is between Satan and the woman, right? He's having this conversation. But how do we know that Adam was there, right there, listening to this whole conversation and not intervening? So in English, if I say, hey, you, and there's a group of people, who am I talking to? Am I talking to the individual person or am I talking to the entire group? You can't tell in English. Could be either, yeah. It could be either because we use the same word. Sure. In other languages, the you is differentiated. So in Spanish, for example, if I say two, that means you individual. If I say vosotros, that's you collectively, the group of you. So there's two different words. And the same holds true in Hebrew, right? So when you look at the passage in Genesis 3, where it says, you will not die, for God knows when you eat of it, your eyes will be open, you will be like God. It's plural. It's plural in Hebrew. In fact, if you look at the Spanish um, uh, translation of the Bible, it's also plural. <laughs> so so it, he's not just talking to Eve, he's talking to both of them. And, but he, you think he's talking only to Eve because Adam doesn't do or say anything, which goes against exactly what he's supposed to do. He's supposed, he was supposed to jump in and say, hold, hold, hold on, Satan. We, we agreed when God created us that we we're going to be in covenant relation with God. You're trying to destroy that. And he, would, he should take his wife and put his wife behind her and said, no way. If, you, if you're going to get to her, you got to get through me first. That's what he should have done. But he didn't do that because he fell under the guile and the spell of Satan, not the, 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 the uh, of his wife, although his wife gave him and, and, you know, she ate and then she gave him to him. Now, notice, notice the relationship between the two and this covenant relationship, this bond of uh, where the two become one flesh. Right. It wasn't until they both ate that they both fell. It's very clear in the scriptures. It's not like she ate and then she fell. And then he ate and he fell. Notice it's after they both eat what the scripture says, then the eyes of both were opened. 
after they both eat. Why? Because they're one flesh. In that covenant relationship, that establishes the covenant bond of unity and oneness between that married couple. And, and that bond, right? Jesus emphasized this in Matthew, Matthew uh, 18. You, you are no longer two, but one. Going back to what, uh, what God established in Genesis. An interesting question on this um, uh, situation that, that I've heard quite a few times, and I'm interested to hear your response to this. This was Adam and Eve's sin. Why are we staying by their sin? We didn't, we didn't eat of the fruit. Why is it impacting us and, and the whole of humanity in the way that it has done? And why did, why did Jesus need to save the whole of humanity, not just Adam and Eve for what they did wrong? Yeah, so um, a, couple, a couple of things there. Uh, now, Jesus, how, how do we get initiated into the life of Christ? What initiates us in, in, into, into the life of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? What, what sacrament initiated? Baptism, okay? Baptism is how we are brought into the covenant relationship with Christ, right? And, and so that sin of our first parents is, is, is carried down through the generations spiritually. It, think about it like um, uh, a disease like sickle cell anemia or something like that. So that's a disease where the parents carry the gene and that gene is passed on to their children. It may or may not become, it may lay dormant or may become active in the child. And, and the parents may not even have the disease, but they pass on the gene. And so it's like this sin gene was passed on from our first parents all the way down to us. And so by, the first thing that Christ's death destroys is original sin by initiating us into the covenant relationship with Christ uh, by baptism. That destroys the stain of original sin. But personal sin, or what Saint Augustine called concupiscence, which is that desire to say no to God because of our freedom, that still exists. And so we still are personally responsible for our own sins. And that's why we still die. Even after we receive baptism, we still physically die. We weren't meant to die, but we die because we can still make the decisions to say no to God because our freedom is still intact. And so um, Christ's forgiveness of sins uh, not only removes the temporal or earthly effects of sin, it also, in the case of uh, mortal sin, redu uh, uh, eliminates the eternal punishment of sin. See, so, so there's three sins that are, the original sin is remitted, and all of this is done by Christ's death and resurrection on the cross, by the way. So original sin is destroyed by initiating us into the covenant of baptism, and then uh, the temporal and earthly effects of sin are remitted through the sacrament of reconciliation or the normal way that they're remitted is through the sacrament of reconciliation and through indulgences, which of course is a, a, an effect um, uh, is, is one of the, um, the great gifts of mercy that, that God, the church has given us through the merits of our Lord Jesus Christ on the cross to remit the temporal effects of sin. Now, just a couple more things on, on the, the practicality of the sacrament then, and then we're going to get into a case study in a moment. But you mentioned there um, the different types of sin. You're talking about original sin. And then we've got mortal and venial sin. Can you quickly give us an explanation as to the difference and why mortal and venial sins? How are they different? Yeah, you know, and that's a great question. Because we often get questioned by our Protestant brothers and sisters. You know, the Bible says all wrongdoing is sin. 
And you Catholics like to put things in boxes and make differentiations and this kind of sin and that kind of sin. All wrongdoing is sin. See, that's why I love being Catholic. We have to look at the entire scripture in context. So if you look in 1 John chapter 5, where that passage is, you'll see John say, and I've got paraphrase here. You'll see John say this. Um, he talks about there is sin which is mortal. Uh, and uh, the word is mortal or deadly in Greek. It's the same word. There is sin which is mortal. I do not say that one, one is to pray for that. So he says, he talks about sin which is not mortal and sin which is mortal. He says, all wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin which is not mortal. And so John clearly makes a distinction between sin that is not mortal, which we just simply call venial sin, and sin which is, is mortal, which we call, of course, mortal sin. So in order for a sin to be mortal or deadly, and it's called mortal and deadly because the effect of it is to cut yourself off from God's life, right? Is death, is literally death, spiritual death. And so there's three, in order for a sin to be mortal, three things must be true uh, and together at the same time. One, the sin must be grave matter, okay? Grave matter. The benchmark is typically violation of one of the 10 commandments, the asedet hadibrot in Hebrew, or the 10 words of God. So violation of one of the Ten Commandments is the typical benchmark for uh, for looking at serious uh, or, or uh, a sin. All right. Um, uh, so if that sin, whatever that that serious sin is, if it's done with full knowledge, I know what I'm doing is wrong, and deliberate consent of the will, I freely choose to do it anyway. Right. So. It's, it's, it's this, um, this serious sin that's done with full knowledge and deliberate consent of the will. No one's forcing you to do it. Um, no one, you know, you're making a free, you understand that when I do this, this is a serious sin and I'm going to probably cut myself off from God's life, but you choose to do it anyway. Because often the attraction and the pleasure of sin overtakes us, right? I, I know, for example, I'm in conversation with men who are struggling with pornography. And often they talk about how it's like a wave that comes over. You know, so sometimes you're at the at the at the, the beach at the seashore and you're standing there and a wave hits you from behind and you kind of knocks you down and carries you out with it. And you can't you can't do anything. It just you're helpless. And that's how a lot of uh uh men feel when this temptation to look at pornography comes on. And and so um and so if we if we go with that flow, right? If we get carried away deliberately, I know what I'm doing is wrong. I freely choose to do it anyway. Then we've lost sanctifying grace, which is the grace that we received in baptism that we need to get to heaven. We, now, the, 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 um, the indelible character and the indelible mark of baptism remains, but the graces are gone when we sin mortally. Now we can... Um, and if we die in a state of unrepented mortal sin, then we're going to hell. The catechism is very clear about that. In fact, the catechism says you go immediately to hell upon death if you die in a state of unrepented mortal sin. Now, um, Jesus dies to restore us back to life. And so he gave us a sacrament of reconciliation. And so the sacrament of reconciliation um, restores 
the graces that we received in baptism, the sanctifying grace, the grace we need to get to heaven. And as long as we continue to cooperate with that grace, what happens over time is that we empty ourselves of sin. We empty that self of, the, of our desire to separate ourselves from God. And the more we do that, the more room we create in our hearts and in our lives for God to come in and do amazing thing, amazing things in our life. You know, people ask me all the time, how'd you get to be a speaker? And, and, and now I, I just won an award. So I'm an award-winning author now, whatever, right? How'd you get to do all this? It, it's cooperating with God's grace. I made the decision. I no longer want to um, focus on sin in my life. I want to focus on emptying myself of everything that separates me from God's love, because the more room I can create in my heart for God, the more God can use me for his glory. We're giving God permission to use us. But the key to all of that cooperation is saying no to sin. And, and Jesus realized that we are human beings, that we are will be tempted, that Satan's power, because Satan is the Lord of this world, and that his, his hold is strong sometimes on us. But God's love is more powerful than, than the power of Satan and the power of sin. And so as long as we cooperate with that grace, and uh, like, for example, in moments of temptation, I'll start praying in our Father, Hail Mary, St. Michael prayer. I just ask for it in my, my guardian angel. I, I ask for the intercession of the saints to help me stay completely focused on Christ. In that moment of temptation, I ask the Blessed Mother. I ask the guardian angels, I ask St. Michael to be with me because we're, we're part of that communion of saints. Right? We're part of the family of God. And so we're not alone in this fight. And so I ask the, the, the warriors, right, the, the, the spiritual prayer warriors to come in and, and to help me stay strong in the Lord. Okay, so we've now established um, the way God intended things to be from creation. We've established what went wrong. We've established the difference between the different types of sin. And we've established that Jesus came. He died for us. He's also given us this great sacrament of reconciliation to, to free us, to absolve us of, of all of these sins. Why do we need to go to a priest? Is another one of the big questions that we get. Why do you need to go and confess your sins to a priest? Yeah, why can't you just pray to Jesus and your sins are forgiven? Well, first of all, it's not in scripture. <laughs> um, you know, I, I challenge our Protestant brothers and sisters who I love and respect because they, they truly love and respect the word of God. And, and, they, and, they, and, you know, and they're very um, articulate about sharing their faith and evangelizing. So I have to respect that. Um, but if, 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 if they say, Jesus says, pray to me, your sins are forgiven. Jesus must have said that somewhere, right? So I, so simply show me the scripture where Jesus Christ, who is God, out of his own mouth says, pray to me and your sins are forgiven. Now, the verse they sometimes go to is in 1 John, right? Chapter one, where Jesus says, uh, where John says that, um, uh, uh, again, paraphrasing here, because I, I don't have the scripture in front of me paraphrasing here that says um that you you have to when you when you sin you have to confess the sin and god will forgive you when you confess your sin okay all that passage says is that in order for sin to be forgiven you have to confess the sin duh that's why we sometimes call it the sacrament of confession but it doesn't say how the sin is forgiven all that passage in, in 1 John chapter 1 says is that you have to confess your sin in order for the sin to be forgiven. It doesn't say how the sin is forgiven. 
In order to find that out, Mark, we have to go to John chapter 20. In John chapter 20, right at the beginning of the chapter, it is the evening of the resurrection. So uh, it's, it's Easter Sunday evening. Ten of the apostles are in the upper room. Why only ten? Because remember, Judas hung himself, and we know the first time that the apostle Thomas wasn't there. So Jesus comes in, he says, peace be with you. And they were like, whoa, it's Jesus. Peace be with you, he says again, as the Father has sent me, so I send you. And when he said this, he breathed on them. Now, why does John include that detail about breathing? That we already uh, talked about the fact, Mark, that in, in Genesis chapter 2, God breathed into our nostrils a breath of life. Now, the word for create is bara in Hebrew. And when you look at that word, how it's used all throughout the scriptures, the only one that creates anything in the entire Bible is God, right? Because we don't create, we co-create with God. And, and so there's only twice that God creates by breathing, Genesis chapter 2 and John 20. Now, some people will say, Mark, what about Ezekiel, where he says God breathed into those dried bones? Hello, that's a resuscitation, sure. not a creation. Those people were already alive and they died and, and the spirit came in and, and, and raised those dry, dead bones, right? That, that's not creating from nothing. They were already alive and they're dead. What Jesus does by breathing on, in fact, if you look in the Septuagint, which is the Greek Old Testament, the phrasing is, is very, very similar. He breathed on us and receive the Holy Spirit who sins you forgive are forgiven them whose sins you retain are retained again the word you there in greek is plural because he's talking to the 10 apostles so what jesus does jesus doesn't walk into that room and say uh peace be with you uh if anybody has sin you tell them to pray to me and i'll take care of it he doesn't do that instead jesus breathes the power of the life-giving holy spirit into those apostles and and he gives them specific and direct authority in his name, in the Holy Spirit, to forgive sins. Why? Because Jesus still wanted to have personal relationship with us. He, Jesus knew that he wasn't going to stay on earth. He was going to send to the Father and send the Holy Spirit to kind of kickstart the church. So, so, um, so he gave them the Holy Spirit and gave them the authority because he still wants to touch us with his own hands. He still wants to love us with his own heart. Jesus still wants personal relationship. And so he gave us the gift of the priests. So when the priest says, that's why the priest says, I absolve you, not Jesus absolves you because Jesus is absolving the sin through the priest. And the only way the priest can say those words, I absolve you, is he was if he was given authority by Jesus Christ himself. And that's exactly what happens in John chapter 20, right? You're so right, so Jesus is the fulfillment of the, of the new covenant because the old covenant, of course, was the, the sacrificial system. If they, if they committed sin, they brought an animal, lamb, sheep, goat, turtle, doves, or if they couldn't afford an animal, they brought um, an epath of fine flour, which is 4.9 dry gallons, or that would be approximately 7.4 liters of of dry grain and they would make that as an offering well jesus is the lamb of god who takes away the sins of the world so we no longer have to bring a lamb or a sheep or a goat he is the lamb whose blood was spilled on the altar of the cross for the remission of sin we now just have to bring ourselves 
and we bring them to the priest. And by that healing ministry given to them in God's mercy, the sin is forgiven. The slate is wiped clean. What you just said there just raises an interesting question. Uh, in recent times in the church, we've found instances of priests who have used the incorrect um, words of the sacrament when it comes to baptism. I baptize you in the name of the creator and the redeemer and the sanctifier. And that's not a valid baptism because they haven't correct. used that correct form. If a priest was doubting, for example, in the sacrament of reconciliation, that he could absolve with Jesus' authority, and he said, Jesus absolves you, is that a valid uh, absolution? No, it's not. <laughs> you, you have so to it's, use it's the, the same thing. So, so yeah. for example, just, just like if the priest and the holy sacrifice of the mass did not say the words of institution, he did not say the words that Jesus says, this is my body, or this is Jesus' body. It's not valid. You, we yeah. have to use the words that Jesus Christ himself used, right? He, Jesus said, whose sins you forgive are forgiven. Whose yeah. sins you retain. So the priest is forgiving the sin through the power of Jesus. It's Jesus forgiving the sin through the priest. That's why Jesus said, well, you just say Jesus absolves you. Or in the name of Jesus, you are absolved. He says, I absolve you. It's that personal relationship he's you know that the christ is working in and through the priest so he has to use the correct words it's called matter and form in order for any sacrament to be valid you have to use the correct matter and you have to correct you have to use the correct form and you have to have the right intention so for example i was talking about this with somebody on the plane the other day if um uh, if two kids are in a pool right and the guy takes a, a, a pail of water and pours it over his friend's head. I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Hold on. You got the right matter. You got the right form, right? And, and, and anybody technically, I mean, anybody in a sense could baptize in, in danger of death. That could be, it's, why is it not a, not a valid baptism? Because that attention. child is... He doesn't have the intention to do sure. what the church is doing. However, if a grandmother takes her unbaptized grandson, because the, the, the son fell away from the church and him and his wife don't go to church, the kids aren't baptized. And grandma says, oh, I'll give the baby a bath. Oh, okay, mom, go ahead, please. And mom pours water. I baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. That's a valid baptism. It's not licit. It's not licit, but it's valid. You know. Uh, so, so intention is also very important in the sacraments. It, it'd be the same, I suppose, as when you see a movie depicting a sacramental scene where they use all the correct matter. Exactly. But once again, there's no intention for it to actually this, take place. Exactly. So it's not real, but it's just a movie. And plus that the person's not ordained anyway. So yes. it's just, it's just, so the ordination is not even there anyway. So Sure, absolutely. I mentioned before, we're going to go and look into now a case study, sort of looking at this whole idea of... of sin and then reconciliation and we're looking no further than the scriptures themselves we're going to look at the the passage of the prodigal son which is obviously well known to everybody um so deacon why don't you give us a little bit of a, a summary of the passage and i suppose you could even call it the prodigal sons because both sons yeah, yeah. are in focus here we always focus on 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 the 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 first son who who leaves the father etc but the other son 
uh, he, he plays his part in this story and, and it, it doesn't look favorably upon him at the end either. So why don't you give us a summary of the story and let's use this as a bit of a case study to, to the need for reconciliation and, and how it works. Sure. So, I mean, I think everybody's familiar with the, with the, the story of the prodigal son. It's one of Jesus' most famous parables. It's one of the most popular parables. And he gave us that parable to show the awesome, awesome power of God's divine mercy and love, that there is no sin too great that cannot be forgiven by God's loving mercy. And so we all know the story, right? There's a, a, a man has two sons. Uh, the younger son asks for the share of his father's estate. Now that's the first point. You usually don't get a share of your parents' estate until after they're dead, right? And you read the will. So this shows how much, in a sense, how much disdain that this younger son had for his father. He didn't even wait for his father to die before he asked him for his share of his estate, right? So he's already showing disrespect to the father, but the father, because he loves his son, gives him his share of his inheritance. And what does he do? He goes off and squanders it with uh, sex, drugs, and rock and roll, right? Wine, women, and song, right? He squanders his, it, it, the way the scriptures describe it, on a life of dissipation. You know, and look, look at our culture today. You look at, you know, human trafficking, you look at uh, uh, pornography, you look at, um, you know, uh, the way people are, are, are using and wasting money um, and, and resources given to them by God, squandering the gifts that God has given us, you know, on, on things that ultimately don't satisfy, on things that ultimately don't give us fulfillment, on things that ultimately will leave us bereft because we can never find what our hearts are truly yearning and longing for in the material possessions of the world. But yet, that's the power of sin. And, and, and this young man was caught up in it. So after he loses everything, obviously he's homeless. He, 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 he tries to find work. He tries to find, he's even trying to find something to eat. So he works for this farmer. And the, far, and the farmer has a pig farm. Now, uh, you got to understand how powerful this part of the story is. Um, pigs were considered filthy, disgusting animals. There's a whole um, uh, set of dietary laws in the book of Leviticus that talks about what animals are clean and what animals are unclean. Um, pigs are unclean because they eat garbage, right? I mean, so they, they could not eat pork at all. And so, so he's working, and here's the thing, he's working in, in this pig farm, and he's feeding the pigs. And But here's the thing, if Jesus was, was said he's working on the pig farm, feeding pigs, and left it at that, people would have been thoroughly disgusted. Oh, my goodness. Oh, that's just, oh, that's horrible. But then Jesus takes it up a, to a whole nother level. And this is something that people don't really, you know, uh, notice when, when they, they kind of skip over this piece. But But if you're Jewish... This is huge. He says, he adds, not only was he feeding the pigs, he longed to eat the pods that fell from the pig's slop, right? He, in other words, he longed to eat what the pigs ate. So it's not just a matter of working with the pigs. He longed to eat what the pigs eat. I'm sure it doesn't say it in the word of God, but I'm sure somebody vomited when, when Jesus said that. I mean, that would have made people literally sick. I mean, it, it, oh, he's eating with the pigs, but he longed to eat with the pigs. Imagine that. Imagine, and, and, and unfortunately, Mark, 
this is a sad reality for many of our brothers and sisters who are on the streets homeless these days. Imagine going into a dumpster. You're hungry, Mark. And you go into a dumpster in a restaurant and you see all the leftover food that people, uh, you know, uh, that didn't eat and they threw it in the dumpster. And that's what you're eating. That's what you're eating. Right. And that that's what this young man, he longed to eat what the pigs that he longed to eat out of the dumpster. That's how desperate he was. That's how far away from God he was. And Jesus was making a point that you can't get any lower. You can't get any further away from God than where this young man was in, in, in this point in the story, in this point in his life. And, and when you hit rock bottom like that, it's then that you realize the only person that can help me is God. This is an important point, Mark, because I tell people all the time whose children are uh, addicted to drugs or to alcohol, and they go in and out of rehab, in and out of rehab, in and out of rehab, and nothing works. I said, you have to pray for your children to get to the pig pen. You have to pray for them to get to the pig pen. Now, as a parent, it's going to be very painful for you to see your child go through that. It's going to be very painful for you. But but everything you're doing is not working. I, I, I'll give you an example. I was in Texas once, Mark, and the guy picked me up from the airport. We're driving to the parish, and we drive past this park. And as soon as we drove past the park, the gentleman broke down in tears, started crying. And I looked at him. I said, um, is everything okay? He goes, I'm sorry, Deacon. He goes, my son lives in the park. Oh, wow. I said, what? He goes, my son is drug addicted. And he used to live at home, in and out of rehab, and we still had him at home. But this last time, he had his needles out, and we had the grandkids over. And one of the grandkids found one of his needles. And so now we're afraid that he's endangering the lives of our grandchildren, so we had to put him out of the house. And so his son was living in the park, Mark. You know, we have to pray for our children to get to the pig pen because it's only then that they will realize the only person that can help me right now is God. And that's what happens to this young man. He realizes, oh my goodness, I have to go back to my father. But he's embarrassed and ashamed because of how he treated his father, what he did with his father's inheritance. So he goes, I will go back to my father. I will say, Father, I've sinned against heaven against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. So he recognizes that he has to seek reconciliation from the father. And the hardest part of all that, Mark, was taking those first steps back to the father. Now, we call that conversion or metanoia in Greek or shub in Hebrew. And when you look at what that word actually means, it means to turn your mind around. It literally, it, it means 180. You're going in this direction, and all of a sudden, you're going in the opposite direction. And that's what happened with this young man. He had the courage to turn back to God in humility, recognizing his, very much aware of his sinfulness. And he still made those courageous steps back to the father. Now, you would expect the father First of all, not to be looking for his son, not expecting his son to come back. But what does the Lord Jesus tell us in this parable? When the, the son was still a long way off, the father caught sight of him. Which means what? The father was looking for him the entire time. 
And the same is true of us, Mark. Even when our deepest darkness throws of sin, God never stops loving us. God never stops looking for us. God never stops opening his arms to receive us back again, no matter what we've done, no matter how great our sin is, right? And so the father sees his son. And what does he do? He runs to meet his son. And that's what God wants to do for us. He wants to run to meet us with his mercy and with his love and with his forgiveness. And that's what the sacrament of reconciliation is all about. And he, and, he, and he confesses to his father, father, I've sinned against heaven again. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And so he puts a ring on his finger, sandals on his feet, puts on his finest robe, and he throws a huge party for him. That's heaven. <laughs> That's heaven. And so many people think that they can't get to heaven. They stop going to church because they, they uh, like, for example, women who've had abortions. I've talked to several women who, even though they've gone to the sacrament of reconciliation, they still can't bring themselves to go to church and receive communion because the, the, the heaviness of what they've done, they realized it now and they've sought forgiveness. God has forgiven the sin, but they still can't forgive themselves. They still can't forgive themselves. And what Jesus is teaching us in this parable, that God's arms are wide open to receive us no matter what we've done. That's how awesome, that's how incredible his divine mercy is always ready to receive. Now we have the older brother, right? The older mm -hmm. brother who did everything that his father asked him to do. He's already going to go. He's, he's already getting heaven, but he's mad because of, of what his son did and how the father treated his son. But the father, is, so, so he, that's the hard heartedness. Look, we can definitely see ourselves in, in, that, in that older brother, right? I mean, how, how many times have we had people that, oh, that person is going to go to hell, or that person is this, and that person is that. And they have a massive conversion experience. Or they or they come to you saying, look, you know, I I, I truly am sorry for what I did to you 20 years ago. You know, I, I, I'm sorry for taking that money from you. I'm sorry for the, um, I was drunk, and I, and I, and I committed a, a grievous act against you. I, I'm sorry, and I'm asking your forgiveness. And, but, but the anger and the resentment that we feel that has built up over time, sometimes overtakes the loving act of mercy and repentance that the person is asking from us. You know, so we're like that older brother in a lot of ways. Our hearts get resentful and they get hard. But, but the father goes to son, look, everything I have is yours. But your son was dead and came back to life, right? He was cut off from my life, but now he has repented and come back. That's the point that we have to love Jesus. That's why Jesus says we have to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. We have to pray for those who hurt us. That doesn't mean that we become their best friends, but we have to forgive them from the heart. Jesus teaches us very clearly. We must forgive them, not just say the words. We have to mean it with our whole heart. As, as I said, in the our is father very as well. hard to do. In it's the very father, hard man. to do. We, we pray, forgive us as we forgive those. So if we can't be willing to forgive those and, and we, we hold resentment to those, then, then we're not going to be forgiven either, are we? That's right. That, see, that's how powerful that prayer is. Then we say it so fast. We say it every Sunday, but you got to think about what we're saying, that God will only forgive us to the extent 
that we are willing to forgive others, right? And when it was that sentiment that led me to forgive my dad, you know, um, after not talking to him for 18 years, you know, we, we got to a point of reconciliation, which is another talk, right? <laughs> On divine mercy. <laughs> but, but it was that point where I heart, you know, uh, forgave my father. And I, in fact, not only that, Mark, I asked him to forgive me for how I felt toward him, the hatred and resentment I held toward him. I asked my father for forgiveness for how I reacted to him. You know, so that so so what happens is in that beautiful divine mercy image, the rays are coming out from the heart of Jesus. And so God is asking each and every one of us to be vehicles of mercy and, and of God's merciful love in the lives of others, especially those who have hurt us. It's a beautiful parable. And I think, as, as you mentioned, we can see um, we can see ourselves in either one of those sons at various stages of our life. I think we can also see ourselves in the father. We can be the one who is hurt and desperate for someone to come back as well. So every character within that parable uh, relates some sort of message that we can that we can take from. So I think that's why it is such a well-known parable because it is so relatable to anyone at any stage in their life. So yeah, it's a it's a really nice case study just to, to tie a bow on this whole discussion of reconciliation. Um, so we're just about out of time here, Deacon. Just before we finish, uh, I'd just like to uh, invite people if they are wanting to, to follow the work of Deacon Harold, and even if they're wanting to book Deacon in to do a speaking event, because Deacon, you're, you're back on the road and available for speaking events again, uh, you can visit Deacon's website, um, uh, deaconharold.com for all the details there. And you can also purchase his resources from that same place. There's a button there for the, for the shop on that website. Uh, and if you'd also like to keep up with the work that we're doing here at Perusia, you can visit us at perusiamedia.com and, and stay across all of our activities here down in Australia as well. So thank you once again, Deacon Harold, for, for the discussion today. It's, it's, it's a really important discussion, this one, because this sacrament is so powerful for all of us if we're only willing to embrace it. So I think it's really important to get to the bottom of, of what it's all about so that we, we are able to embrace it. So thank you very much for your wisdom on this, on this subject. You're most welcome. Thank you so much for having me. And, and we look forward to, to the next opportunity to chat. And for everyone else who's been listening, thank you for listening to the Speaking with Deacon podcast. And we look forward to being with you next time. God bless you.